The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 9, Competence to Stand Trial. I am Dr. Tom Recor. I'm a forensic and clinical psychiatrist uh, working for the Mississippi State Hospital. I am a former officer in the Marine Corps, and while I was in Iraq, decided to pursue a different path and went to medical school and uh, attended Duke University uh, Adult Psychiatry Residency in 2011, and in 2015 completed a a forensic psychiatry fellowship at the University of North Carolina and returned to Mississippi to practice in 2016. Dr. Recor, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today about this uh, important topic in criminal forensic psychiatry. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I did have a question listening to your pedigree. How does it work when Duke and UNC are playing each other in basketball you have degrees from both institutions. That's correct. I get asked this probably more frequently than anything about anything I've done in my life so far. I imagine People you're asked wanna... that question when you're on the witness stand. <laughs> it's not uncommon. Yeah, I get asked that frequently. I, I take some kind of perverse joy in being hated uh, as a dookie. And I was there for uh, four years. And so I, I love the folks at UNC and had had tremendous education there, but I, uh, I'm a blue devil all the way. All right. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way because that's an important question for me. And I, I know I've never asked you that question, Yeah. but I'm glad you gave us the right answer, sir. <laughs> so the competence to stand trial issue is, is very important, but I wanted to take a little bit of a step back and understand the foundations from, from where we get to the issue of competence to stand trial. My understanding is that that comes from the idea of a fair trial. Is there some sort of guarantee in the United States that everyone gets a fair trial? Sure. On the most basic level, an individual's right to a fair trial is enshrined in the Sixth Amendment. Um, and if, you know, of the top 10 things our founding fathers thought were important, uh, a right to a fair trial, including uh, right to face one's accusers, etc., was important enough to land in that top 10 spot. So when you say Sixth Amendment, you mean the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution? That's correct. When people talk about a fair trial, it sounds nice, but then on the other hand, you watch the news or just kind of keep your eyes open. It's hard to give somebody a fair trial. It seems like uh, for a lot of criminal defendants, the deck is stacked against them, uh, particularly against people who don't have financial resources. A criticism of the criminal justice system that, that sometimes uh, folks have certain advantages, that, that would be a fair criticism. The guarantee isn't necessarily perfect, uh, but that guarantee needs to be adequate. What, what does a right to a fair trial have to do with psychiatry or with mental health disorders? There is a, as far back as English common law, uh, an understanding that trial in absentia, in other words, um, having a trial without the accused being present is generally a bad idea. In 1960, as I'm, as I'm sure we'll talk about soon enough, 
it became clear that someone needs to be mentally present, adequately mentally present at the time of their trial in the, in the interest of fairness. Okay, so let me see if I understand you correctly. Uh, so what you're saying is trial and absentia, I guess to me, would sound like the person is not physically present. It, it sounds like you're drawing the metaphor, or maybe other legal scholars have drawn it before you, that if the person is not mentally present, that's as bad as not being physically present. That's right. Of all the ways I've heard folks describe uh, the the precursors to our current understanding of competence to stand trial, this is the one that stuck with me the most, is that folks need to be physically and mentally present for for their trial to proceed. That's a, that's a really clear way of looking at it, and that, that helps me think about it better. So there's a, a case, and you know we're not going to talk about a lot of nitpicky cases that define the competence to stand trial approach in the United States, but the one that I think is important to, to think about at the, at the basic level is one called uh, Dusky v. U.S. Have you heard of that case? And, and if you have, can you tell us a little bit about it? I have. If I, I don't know of a forensic psychiatrist that hasn't heard of Dusky v. U.S. It is the uh, standard from which all other standards uh, in the United States derive their competence to proceed legally standard. Um, you know, Milton Dusky was a defendant uh, who uh, in the 50s uh, was accused of unlawfully transporting a girl across state lines and raping her. Prior to his trial, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who provided the opinion that he was oriented. When I say oriented, he um, knew where he was and he, he, he knew who he was and where he was as general psychiatrists would say, uh, in all spheres. So you're saying that he had an evaluation, which was basically like, a, it sounds like a cognitive screen, and they figured that he was oriented to person, place, and time. That's exactly right. So then what happened? So then he, he went to trial and was convicted, and his case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, who uh, said that a brief cognitive screen was inadequate to establish someone's competence to proceed legally, and they set forth a new standard. The language is uh, whether the defendant has a sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding, and whether the defendant has a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him. Before we get into the details about the Dusky Standard, I want to just uh, understand uh, one thing. It sounds like when there's a question about competence to stand trial, we can't just go based on a routine psychiatric evaluation. That's not going to get us there. So, so what is a competence to stand trial evaluation? A competence to stand trial evaluation is a psychiatric evaluation that's similar to a consult, if you will, except it's ordered by the court and it's for the specific purpose of establishing someone's competence to proceed legally. Uh, there are things that we want to know about in this evaluation that goes beyond the scope of a standard psychiatric evaluation. So let's let's break apart this Dusky standard just a little bit. Uh, you had mentioned that the individual has to have a factual understanding of courtroom proceedings. What do you mean by that? Uh, a factual understanding of someone's legal situation basically means understanding 
some of the more rudimentary parts of how the legal system works. So, for example, that would be the number of jurors on a jury, what the job of a judge is, what the job of one's attorney is, and these type of things uh, that, that most people who aren't familiar with the criminal justice system would pick up from watching things like Law and Order uh, or, or just from um, their, their middle school civics class. And how do you ask these questions to the person being evaluated? Do you just kind of say, well, sir, tell me what is a plea bargain, or is there some other way to get that information? There's a couple ways. There's, a, there's something called the Georgia Court Competence Test that's a standardized instrument that you can, it's basically a picture of a courtroom, and you can have folks point out to you uh, where different, different individuals involved in the legal system um, would be placed and what their role is. And just as you spoke to a second ago, you can ask them, what's the job of your attorney and get a sense of how much they understand or ask them how many folks are on a jury and if the jury can't agree, what's that called and what happens next and these types of things to assess uh, their factual understanding of their legal situation. Do these people that are asked these questions or take this test that you mentioned, do, do they have to get a perfect score? Certainly not. It's You want to see the the depth to which they understand it, but whether or not someone has a factual understanding of their legal situation is an opinion that, that I would provide, and it's up for the court to decide. I see. So what you're saying is you want them to have a pretty good idea of how court works, and then you'll share your opinion, but in the end, it's the judge who decides if they're actually competent. That's correct. Well, you mentioned something else, a rational understanding of courtroom proceedings. How is that different than a factual understanding? In its most simplest terms, rationality has to do with someone's ability to incorporate new information and uh, make decisions based on this additional information. So, for example, if someone was facing a maximum sentence of 20 years and you ask them whether they would want to take a plea bargain for 10 years if there was a lot of evidence against them, then they could provide you with a, an answer uh, based on the hypothetical situation. If you provided them a similar situation and you explained that there was no evidence whatsoever and you asked them uh, whether or not they would accept a plea bargain, then they should be able to adjust, they should be able to adjust their uh, decision-making process, incorporating the new information that's provided to them. The way you make it sound, it seems like the uh, the first part, the factual understanding, is something that, you know, you could give them like a fill-in-the-blank test or even a multiple-choice test to, to sort out, but this other one seems to require kind of a back and forth between the mental health clinician and the defendant. That's exactly right. The back and forth uh, and, and understanding uh, whether someone has a rational understanding of their legal situation is something that gets developed, uh, in my opinion, in a, in a forensic psychiatry fellowship. And it's something that you practice and it's something that you have the opportunity to uh, see done. And uh, in my opinion, you, you often can see the outcome in reading reports and seeing testimony of folks who have this type of training. Do you think that it's the rational 
understanding that is harder to assess or cultivate in the forensic examiner or the factual one? I think actually the hardest part is is assessing whether someone can work with their attorney with a reasonable degree of rational understanding in the preparation of their defense. And this this is especially true in cases where defendants say, I don't want to accept a plea bargain for time served. And it's especially true if, as an evaluator, uh, looking at the evidence myself, if I were the defendant charged with something similar, would be inclined to take whatever the the offer that's available uh, might be. In, in these cases, the, the determination is a little bit more difficult. There are plenty of folks who have a factual understanding of their legal situation, and they lack a rational understanding. And there are far fewer folks who might would have a rational understanding but lack a factual understanding. There's another word that you had mentioned earlier, and I'll be asking the individual who's going to do our insanity defense episode the same question. You mentioned that the Dusky Standard requires the person to have a present uh, rational and factual understanding. W- what did you mean by the word present? This is probably the favorite question uh, that I get asked in, in my line of work. And it's, it's important that folks who are thinking about competence to proceed legally, it's important that they understand that what we're talking about is at the time of my evaluation of this person, do they have the ability to work with their attorney to prepare a defense? Uh, if you if you get caught up in popular media or any of these crime shows, everyone is interested in what someone was thinking at the time of their alleged offense, which is a retrospective evaluation, and that would never change, whereas competence to proceed can change from month to month, depending on how someone's mental status changes, and that can be due to any number of factors. We get asked on the stand, and this has been true in more than one in more than one state, was the person competent at the time of the crime? And for those who practice forensic psychiatry, that's a nonsensical question. Competent to do what? And sanity, which is not the topic for today, has to do with whether someone understood at the time of their alleged offense the nature, quality, and wrongfulness of of their actions. And um, folks in the criminal justice system get it wrong experienced uh, clinical psychiatrists get it wrong. And uh, I never get bored of talking about it because the more folks that understand it, the more clear we can be in terms of how we understand what's going on with people. I I really appreciate you making that distinction. We're going to come back to the issue of uh, competence to stand trial and insanity defense evaluations in a few minutes. But uh, I wanted to to move on uh, to this, this other question regarding the competence to stand trial evaluation, if that's the only thing that's been ordered, is it essential that the forensic examiner come to a very specific diagnosis as they are figuring out if the person is or is not competence to stand trial? It's helpful in the formulation of of a coherent explanation to the court, but having uh, being afflicted with a diagnosis does not tell you one way or another whether someone is competent to proceed legally or not. So you're saying if somebody has, uh, let's say, one of the severe mental illnesses, uh, how about um, schizophrenia, if one person has schizophrenia, they might be competent to stand trial, and another person with schizophrenia may not be competent to stand trial. The diagnosis itself 
doesn't sound like it's enough of an issue to decide competence or incompetence. I'll go one step further. You can be actively psychotic and hearing voices and those symptoms in themselves may not interfere with your ability to work with your attorney. It's a very specific question uh, and, and just because someone has a diagnosis does not mean that they would not be competent to proceed legally or be competent to proceed legally. Coming back to the, the legal issues related to competence to stand trial evaluations, someone has to ask for a competence to stand trial evaluation to be done. Anyone at any time in the court can ask for an evaluation if it appears there is sufficient reason to do so. The burden of proof lies generally, and this is this is state by state, um, but the burden of proof generally lies with the defendant to establish uh, to a preponderance of evidence that he or she is incompetent to proceed legally. So those are a couple of issues. One you mentioned is the burden of proof, and the burden of proof being on the defendant to show that they cannot proceed with trial. Uh, however, you said that anyone can request a competence to stand trial evaluation. Well, a judge would order it. You know, judges don't get in the business of of requesting things. But it's true that a a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney can request a competence evaluation at any time. Now, you mentioned another term, preponderance of the evidence, and I think about that in terms of the standard of proof. What is preponderance of the evidence? Please remind us. Sure. Preponderance of the evidence is, um, we think of it as more likely than not, or 51%. So that's a pretty low standard. When I think about uh, criminal convictions, you know, those are often uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is considered by many the highest standard. You're telling us that this is kind of the lowest standard. Right. And, and the reason this standard is much lower is because if we were to have it any higher, the further we get from 50%, let's say, all of those folks that would actually be uh, incompetent to proceed legally if where they were to be considered uh, competent to proceed legally, that's problematic in the eyes of, of the law and, and just in our sense of fairness of things. So, Dr. Recourt, what happens if somebody is found uh, incapable of proceeding with trial or incompetent to stand trial or, or whatever the term is in a jurisdiction? What happens to them? When a court determines that someone is not competent to proceed legally, they're generally ordered to a period of competence restoration treatment. Uh, for all folks, that involves psychoeducation about how the legal system works, and that could be group and individual therapy, and it often also involves medication to treat whatever mental illness uh, is keeping the person from being able to work with their attorney uh, with a reasonable degree of rational understanding as we outlined in the Dusky Standard. Can you make somebody or force somebody to take medication to try to help them become competent to stand trial? I'll start with that answer by saying you can always medicate someone who's imminently dangerous to themselves and others um, for the purpose of keeping that person safe and for the purpose uh, of keeping others safe. So, so that's, that's the... Uh, Emergency force medicine standard. That's emergency force medicine. And if someone were incompetent to proceed legally and dangerous to themselves or others, and you forcibly medicated them and 
by as a side effect they became competent to proceed legally, that would be okay. If someone is not competent and not dangerous to themselves or others and refusing medications, things get a little bit trickier. And essentially, in many states, what is done is a, it's something called a cell hearing, which, which is when a court determines whether or not the state's interest is high enough to override that individual's freedom to refuse medication. And that's cell S-E-L-L, based on a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's right. So that sounds complicated, but that there is some sort of remedy. There is. And, and, and I also want to point out, you know, when, when we talk about criminal competency, but specifically competence to proceed legally, when we're talking about other areas of criminal competencies, so, so for example, someone who became incompetent um, to be executed you could not forcibly medicate that person, even if the state thought it was in their best interest. You could not forcibly medicate that person, for example, to become competent to be executed or something along those lines. In the interest of efficiency or if simply uh, the court system realizes that uh, the person may have had trouble with their mental status both at the time of the alleged offense and uh, in the present day, I imagine they sometimes order a combined competence-to-stand trial evaluation and a not-guilty-by-reason-of-insanity evaluation. If that happens, how do you handle that? I think it's part of our ethical duty to folks and uh, in the interest of fairness to be reasonably medically certain that someone is competent to proceed legally and understands their rights before we embark on this mental state at the time of an alleged defense evaluation. We wanna remember that in addition to someone's right to a fair trial, like we talked about earlier, we want folks to be able to ex exercise their uh, right against self-incrimination as well. And so in cases where we get both parts of, when we get a competence to proceed evaluation order, and with that comes a mental state at the time of an alleged offense order, we will we want to be sure that they understand their rights before we proceed with the mental state at the time of the alleged defense evaluation. So it sounds like you focus on the present day first, and then if that is okay, then you open up the, the past chapters of their life. Right. It's important to remember in this case that a not guilty by reason of insanity plea is just that. It's, it's just like a not guilty plea. It's just like a guilty plea. It's the plea is that it's an affirmative defense, which means that someone says, basically, I did it, but I didn't know the nature, quality of or wrongfulness at the time of my offense. Um, and so there, there is no, there's no express lane through which someone can be found insane. First, they have to be competent. Second, they enter the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And third, a court agrees with, with that plea. I wonder if you'd agree with this statement. And granted, you know, you and I are, are not attorneys, but I try to think of competence to stand trial as a fairly objective and neutral request that comes from the court, whereas not guilty by reason of insanity evaluations end up putting the 
forensic examiner in the position of either helping or hurting the criminal defendant's defense strategy? All of these evaluations that a forensic psychiatrist is called upon to do you know, should be aimed with, with eliminating bias as much as possible. It could be argued that saying someone is competent to proceed legally in a capital murder case, for example, could be harmful. It's cases like this where we think about to whom the duty is owed. In general practice, in, in general mental health or psychiatric practice, uh, we think about our fiduciary duty being to the patient. So if someone comes to you, um, you have this special trust and confidence uh, assigned to you, and your, a duty is owed to them by virtue of them coming into your office. In the forensic realm, that duty is actually owed to the court. And this is something that we make explicit with, with defendants before we start any of these evaluations. It sounds like that sort of understanding is also part of the training that forensic psychiatrists receive. That's exactly right. Now, what we were talking about over the course of this episode is um, kind of a general competence to stand trial perspective and one that might fit with uh, competence to stand trial in the federal criminal domain. Is this standard the same across the 50 state jurisdictions? Do they use exactly the same standard or are there potential variations? The Dusky standard is the minimum standard. So when the Supreme Court says that someone needs to have a factual and rational understanding and uh, be able to work with your attorney with a reasonable degree of rational understanding, that's the minimum. A state can come along and add additional requirements for someone to be competent to proceed legally if they so choose. So for example, in Mississippi, requirements include that someone be able to testify relevantly and that someone recall relevant facts and that their degree of competence be commensurate with the severity of the offense. So again, it's dusky plus these three components is the standard for Mississippi. And I'm sure there are other standards that are more stringent than than dusky in other states. How is somebody supposed to learn these standards when they move from one state to another? It's important that someone understands these standards. I have seen situations where a uh, mental health professional will get on the stand and um, be asked what the standard is for competence to proceed legally, and it really undermines your opinion if you get on the stand and you don't know the standard for competence to proceed legally, but you provide the court an opinion that someone's competent to proceed legally. Uh, there, there is a problem with your testimony in that situation. So the devil is in the details. <laughs> yes, you could say that. Dr. Ricor, I want to thank you for spending time with us today and understanding this uh, foundational part of criminal forensic psychiatry. What else would you like beginners in this domain to know that they don't necessarily know already about competence to stand trial? That's a great question. All right, I'm going to let you ask me that again. Let me give me a second. I think that's an important. <laughs> what misconceptions might you have come across that either attorneys have or or other psychiatrists about CST? Any 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 thoughts? Yeah, uh, I we were fortunate to be visited by Joel Voskin, who's a uh, a consultant uh, on on forensic issues. I think on a national level, and he pointed out that we use 
terms like forensic patients. And when we, when we do that, we're describing someone's worst moment in their life and then categorizing them uh, as, as that and imagining that somehow that makes them um, scarier than, than our uh, general population of seriously mentally ill folks. Uh, and in some ways, I think we get it wrong when we call folks forensic patients, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now. Uh, there are many factors that go into whether someone ends up being a forensic patient or not, and um, one of the chief among those is really bad luck. For those of us who have worked with serious, seriously mentally ill folks for a long time, we, we know that on any of our folks' worst day, things can go badly, especially if reality testing isn't working out so well. I think we want to be really careful as providers of mental health care uh, when, we, when we're describing what folks have going on and we're considering what we mean when we say this person's a forensic patient. Thank you.